Please turn with me in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 25. Exodus 25, we've been studying the teaching of the Word of God regarding the tabernacle, uh, that the children of Israel were given instructions, and they were to follow the, the teaching of the Word of God and exactly do what the Lord said in the, in the making of the tabernacle and the furnishings. And we said how this is all pointing us to the fact that the worship of God is directed by God. Israel did not uh, have any part in putting their opinions and, uh, and worshiping God in the way they thought was fitting. And so you might read something here and you might wonder, well, why was this? Why is it so complicated maybe? Why is it put in this way? Well, God desires to be worshipped and for his people to follow him in the way that he would. And his, his thoughts are far from our thoughts. And so we continue in our studies. We said last time that in the, the first nine verses of Exodus 25, we have the introduction to the building of the tabernacle. And then the verses 10 through to 22, we get instruction regarding the Ark of the Covenant, which we covered last time in our studies. Now, this, this evening, we want to look at the other two furnishings of that here before us. Verses 23 to 30 describes the table that was to be made. It is called the table of showbread. And then verses 31 to 35 you have the candlestick or the lampstand or menorah uh, that the Lord instructed uh, his people to make. And we did say that the whole teaching concerning the tabernacle, which dominates so much of the rest of the Exodus, it teaches us some things. It's the focal point uh, of much of the Old Testament worship, as well as the uh, temple, of course which became the abiding place in Jerusalem for the worship of God. But we said that there are certain things, there are four things that the tabernacle symbolizes. And I said that we need to get it into our mind, these, these truths. Number one, what does it symbolize? It's, the tabernacle symbolizes that the, of the spiritual and physical dwelling place of God. And we talked about that a little bit the last time. It, so it speaks about the spiritual and the physical dwelling place of God. And then we said, number two, it was the central place of worship. And then thirdly, it was the place of the great king. And then that of the sign and symbol of reconciliation. That's what the tabernacle symbolizes. And uh, last time we looked at the Ark of the Covenant and how uh, we said it was this a furnishing. It was an important piece of furnishing. Uh, <clears throat> and uh, where it, the, the, the way it was built, what it included, what it had within it, all of these things points us uh, to the fact that the Lord is king and he is merciful to souls. But we, we concluded by talking about the fact that the ark is, is a symbol of the kingship of God, that the Lord rules over all. And when we, we interacted with the idea that, that so much of modern Christianity, and especially the Christianity that we have had in the past 150 years, uh, they, they concentrate on simply the way of salvation. And we said, that is good. 
what must I do to be saved? That's a question that is asked and it, the gospel answers that. But the, the true uh, Christian goes beyond that as we follow what the teaching of the word of God is. Uh, the Lord did not simply save us so that we might just uh, sit and twiddle our thumbs till we go to he heaven. No, no. He, he has saved us so might, we might glorify him in this life and to, to recognize him as the king of this world. He's the sovereign of this world. And we said that's the, that's the difference. If uh, I try to point you to the fact that there are various controversies in, in, in the world and in, in, within Christians that there is this idea that all we need is, is, to, is to point people to the cross of Jesus Christ. But no, we, we point people to the cross of Christ and we say now that you're saved, the Lord Jesus Christ says, come and follow me. That's the point. We need to now follow Christ. We become disciples of Christ. I mean, we glorify Christ. And, and we said that the difference between Lutheranism, Martin Luther's teaching, um, again, put it in a very simplistic fashion, and John Calvin and the Reformed Protestant teaching was Luther's concern was how is a man justified with God? John Calvin and the Protestant reformers said, how can a man be justified with God? But how can a man live and glorify God? And so we need to go beyond simply salvation and then to, to see what does the scripture say about living for the glory of God. And so th these are the things that we ought to think about. The Ark of the Covenant describes the throne of God. It has a crown around it. And, it is, and, and I won't go into all the dis discussion that we had the last time. But it, it, it makes us think. Um, that there is more to it than simply quickly reading the scriptures. But now we come to the table, this table that is described in verse 23. And I, I must say that there are books available that, that show in a pictorial fashion. And now with the use of um, the internet, you can even see videos of, of these things. People have put them together generally quite helpfully. But, um, but here is a description of it. Uh, of what the table was and the purpose of it. These are some of the things that we want to think about. So I want you to have your Bible open in verses 23 and 30 of Exodus 25. And, and as I'm speaking to you, you glance over it. You, you look at the verses. and see what, what it says. This, this piece of furniture, the table. Or we said the table of showbread. Now, what was the this table? It was... Uh, it is, again, made of this hard wood, very strong wood. It is, it is to be made with shittim wood, that is acacia wood, very durable. And also this table is covered with what? With pure gold. It, so on this table, there's pure gold. And then there are these stacks of loaves, 12 loaves of bread representing the, the, the tribes of Israel. And it is to be replaced every week. And so, also on the top of the table, beside the 12 loaves of bread, is, is piled two stacks. There are spoons and cups and saucers and goblets and bowls, all of which are made of, again, pure gold. Gold, dear friends, this shows the purity, holiness, and the divinity of things. 
And you see, by the way, why is it that people use gold? Why is it that uh, in, in this world, throughout history, since early history, uh, it's, gold has been the primary means of money? Because you see, man is made in the image of God. Man learns that God assigns value of, uh, to gold. And so man started to, in using gold. It didn't just come about by accident that our monetary system, which the bankers, they wanted to get rid of it, and society or the governments want to get rid of this monetary system, which is based on gold, gold standard. They want to get rid of it. But from, from early ages, man was being taught by, by these things and by the Lord of, 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 of gold and the value of it, that God puts value to it. I'm saying these things that there is a connection in these things. And it became gold was used as a medium of exchange in Israel. And because man is to imitate God in his everyday life, and gold has value with man because it has value with God and it, because it, it de describes the purity and the divinity of who God is. Every time we use money, it's a picture of this, this piece of gold that it represents. And it reminds us, are we using these things in holy things? Is, is the money that we are spending, is it, is it something that glorifies God with it? So you remind yourself that gold is a picture, is, is something that God links to himself. And, and it, it describes the fact that the valuable things are for the glory of God. Now, what is, what is the meaning and purpose of this table? The number of things that we, we see. Number one, it was a table. It was, a, it was for a perpetual, thankful offering to God. It was a perpetual thank offering to God. Because Israel should, should be from the outline, of, uh, from its, its beginning. It should, it should constantly... Be thankful to the Lord. The Lord saved Israel from nowhere, from nothing. They were nobodies. The Lord saved them by his grace and continued to save them and continued to rescue them. They were, they were found where? Abraham was found, the, the scripture says, in the backside of the desert, worshiping idols. But the Lord met him and saved him, gave him faith to trust him, revealed himself to him. And then throughout the ages, the Lord kept saving them. The Lord kept saving them. And, and this is to be, uh, the, the table was to demonstrate the thank offering to God of his people. Because they were so thankful of, the, of his mercies towards them. And so when they, um, when, when they brought the bread, they were thanking God for what? For his provision for them day by day. God has blessed us, provided for us. Every day. So we should thank you. The second thing is this. That the meaning and the purpose of this is that it was the sign that Jehovah was the source of their life. That God was the source of their life. This, this bread, yes, was to be changed every week. Showing that they, they are to be thankful all the time to the Lord. But it is a sign that Jehovah was the source of their life. Physical, social, spiritual, national, covenantal. In every way, God was the source of their life. 
this is showing that he, he was the one who sustained them. Israel didn't sustain themselves, but it was Jehovah. He is the one that took care of them and provided for them. Without him, they were nothing. Without the Lord Jehovah, Israel was nothing. They would get into trouble. They would destroy themselves if it wasn't for the Lord. And so the loaves of bread on this table was not only their thank offering to God, but they were saying this, Lord, by means of this weekly replenishing of the, the, the loaves that we offer to thee are thanks. Yes, they, are, they were saying that, but they were also saying that this is a testimony. This is a testimony. Lord, thou art our sustainer. Lord, you are the one who is keeping us. We can't keep ourselves. Without thee, Lord, we, we cannot live. Thou art our life. We won't make it in this life without the Lord. So they are they're reminding, God is reminding them of this as well. John Calvin in his commentary, he, he wrote in, in connection to this. He said, when Israel ate of the same wheat of which the sacred loaves were made, they were reminded by that symbol that their meat and drink was to be taken as if they sat before God and were his gifts. Finally, they were taught that the food by which man's life is sustained is in a manner sacred to God, that believers might acknowledge that God presides over their tables. Now you say, see the purpose of this? It's to teach you that every time you sit down to eat, God is the host there. God is present there. He has sustained you, you see. And you have to remind yourself, God is the host. God sustained me. He has provided me this. And since he has provided me this, he sees me. He sees me as I'm eating the food that he has provided for me. And, and so he's, he's there. Not physically, but he's there because he's everywhere. And so he must be thanked. He must be thanked. Do you thank the Lord from, from the bottom of your heart? When you're by yourself and you begin to um, open up Maybe the, the, uh, the, your lunch pack or, and, and begin to have your sandwich or whatever it is. Do you realize the Lord is there and he's provided you this? He's the host. And do you thank him? You think, you think of this, that when your wife has, has made uh, a, a, a dinner uh, and she has uh, done her best and she has prepared a, a great meal, there she is sitting. She's looking at you. The food is there in front of you, and she's looking at you. Wouldn't it be awful if you're not thankful, if you don't say thanks and be appreciative? Yet the Lord, with every meal, with every food, with every loaf, the Lord is present. He has provided you with the basics of life. Do you thank Him? He sees you. And so verse 30, it says, Thou shalt set upon the table showbread before me. It says, before me, always, all the time. And understand there that there's a presence in that room every time you eat a meal, in, in wherever you are, there is a presence. Every time you do anything, 
by which your life is sustained, there is another presence there in that room beside you, before you. And, and whoever else is there, and there is the presence of the Lord there. That's the purpose of the table of showbread. That wherever there is bread providing for God's people, there is a presence of the Lord with them. Before me, it says. And therefore, God is to be thanked. We should be thankful for the food that we have. And God is to be honored. And being the host and the provider of our lives, you can't sustain yourself. That's what the table is saying. You and I, we cannot sustain ourselves. We cannot uh, really live off our own things. There are people in this world who, who have all the things of this life, and yet they cannot even put their hand to their mouth. The Lord has taken away that ability to do that. The rich people of this world, people who have to have a carer to come and give them things because they cannot do it. The Lord is the one who must sustain you and provide for you. And so give thanks to God. Before we go further, the Lord Jesus Christ, dear friends, our Lord, takes up this and applies this to himself. This table of showbread is applied to the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember, it's, it all has symbols and types and is fulfilled in the Lord Jesus. If you were to turn to um, John chapter 6, if you were to turn to John chapter 6, and you see uh, that the reason ultimately that, that God had that table there was to teach Israel about Jesus Christ, their Messiah. In John 6 and verse 32, the Lord Jesus Christ takes up several themes uh, there. He speaks about the manna, the bread, the whole, the, whole, the whole thing, the whole description there. In John 6 verse 31, let's, let's read that. It says, our, father, our fathers did eat manna in the desert. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Then Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Moses gave you not that bread from heaven, but my Father giveth you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he which cometh down from heaven and giveth life unto the world. Then said they unto him, Lord, evermore give us this bread. And Jesus said unto them, I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger, and he that believeth on me shall never thirst. Do you see what the Lord Jesus Christ is saying? Can you not link the two together? And so here is our Lord Jesus Christ in John 6. is portrayed before us as the means by which God sustains human life. You cannot sustain yourself, even if you are not a Christian. You are not sustaining yourself. You're kept by the power of God. You're, you're sustained by the word of Jesus Christ. Without Jesus Christ, dear friends, human life will never be sustained. It will wither up. It will die. National life, any society, any nation, th that life in a nation will never be sustained. Physical life will never be sustained. Spiritual, emotional life, psychological life will never be sustained without Christ. Christ is the bread of life. You eat of him by faith. You never hunger again because he is the means by which he is, he is how God provides 
for and sustains human life and existence on this earth. It's not by the great scientists. It's not by the farmers. It's not by any of these things. It's the Lord who gives the blessings of heaven. And without Christ, you will not survive. Now we go back to Exodus 25 again. So I hope you get the gist. I have not gone into great detail, but I've tried to give you the general understanding and get to the heart of the fact that this bread, this, this show, uh, the table of showbread was a picture of demonstrating Israel was sustained by God alone. And he provides for them regularly, all the time. And without him, they will wither and die. And it's a picture of our Lord Jesus Christ as well. The second thing is this, the candlestick or the lampstand, verses 31 to the end. <clears throat> we see now how another uh, piece of furniture, and this is this golden candlestick, verses 31 to 35. Uh, we, we won't read it, but I, I trust you have it open before you, uh, that the Lord again says that it is made of pure gold. The, the golden uh, candlestick, it had a central shaft uh, with, with six branches extending from its sides. It formed a total of seven lamps. The lamps were designed, dear friends, to, to give light in this holy place of the tabernacle. And then later on in the temple. And the, the entire structure, including that central shaft uh, with the six branches, was made of pure gold, it says. Again, it's a picture of divinity, it's a picture of perfection, holiness. And each of the lamps was filled with pure olive oil and burned continuously, uh, which was a representation of divine life and light. And, uh, and it's the, the oil itself is a picture of the Holy Spirit of God. The design of the candle, with, the, with its almonds, uh, blossoms, uh, the, the decorations, the cups the, that's shaped like almond flowers, the, the knobs there, it means the buds. Uh, these are all the engravings and the, sim, they all have symbolic significance that we won't have time to go into. Uh, but this was a most ornate piece of furniture in the whole tabernacle. There was nothing in the tabernacle we could say to compare to this uh, candlestick uh, for its uh, ornateness. Now, I hope you, uh, you have seen a picture of that uh, in, in books and in, uh, in any other forms of media. But you think about this, the golden candlestick or lampstand. What, what could it be? How could we apply it to ourselves today? What would be the value of it? It would be very, very valuable. Tens of thousands of pounds it would be worth. The flame was never to go out. It stood, it stood on the front left of the first room when you walked through the door of the tabernacle. The first thing that you'll see on the left is this lamp that is burning, this, this candlestick that is burning. So you are seeing... Seven lights burning, these flames that are burning, ornately ingrained and decorated with flowers and almonds, uh, with, with, with this 
finely hammered pure gold. The whole thing is, is an amazing picture. It's, it is supplied uh, continually, perpetually with, with olive oil. So what's the purpose of it? Again, think about this. What's the purpose? Why did God give this? Now, there are a number of things that we could say about this. First of all, number one, the first and obvious thing, it's a sign of the necessity of divine revelation. It's a sign and necessity of divine revelation. Israel's religion is not a man-made religion. It's a religion of God that, who has revealed himself. Jehovah has revealed himself. In Psalm 119, verse 105, we'll look at this again later on. The psalmist says, Thy word, this is the revelation of God. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. It's, it's a necessity, dear friends. The revelation of God, divine revelation. It's a sign of the fact that the only way you can know anything in this world is for God to reveal it to you. And, and, and that without his enlightenment, without his uh, illumination, you are going to walk in darkness. That's a simple point. Now, but what we have just said is radical, dear friends, radical. If you were to simply, you've heard me say that, and you thought, well, that, that's not radical. But the world sees it as being radical. To say that you cannot know anything unless God reveals it to you. That is a radical statement. Because man thinks very highly of their education and all, all their thoughts and their imagination. They think they know. But God is the one who must reveal things to you. It's one of the most radical things to think about in our day and age. If you can know anything about anything, it's for God to reveal it to you. You can't get more radical than that. That separates, dear friends, the Christian from the humanists. We have many humanists in this world, dear friends. What does everybody but Christians and a lot of synthetic Half-baked Christians say, well, this is what they say. The half-baked Christians, that is, they are not really Christians, and the, the humanists, this is what they say. Number one, you have to have God to reveal to you certain things about the gospel and that if he doesn't reveal you things about the gospel, then you'd never, you're never going to know those things. If God doesn't reveal to you those things, about heaven, you are not going to know it. But after all, they say, you can use your reason. You can use your reason and, and think, well, one plus one equals two. That's reason, isn't it? So in some things, they would say, all you need is your reason. All you need is your logic. And, and then they say, well, well, you see, this is how we are going to describe to you God, and these are the evidences that we will give of God. And so if you put all of these things together, then you're going to, in a reasonable way, in your thoughts, this is, this is how you're going to find out about God. And then they talk about intuition. Man has some intuition. Man has experience. Man has observations. But my friends, all of those things, and Christians talk about this, 
That's all rationalism. It's rationalism. Reason, experience. Uh, they say they, they count for, for something in this life. So there's basically three ways of knowing things, they say. Uh, uh, and so that's, that's what they, they think about heaven, about the gospel even, about the law, the ordinances of the Lord Jesus Christ. They say, God has revealed those things. Yes, we believe that. But then there are other things. You just use your plain common sense, common reason to know things. That's all you need your reason for, common sense to figure out some things. And then there is some things, just pure intuition, pure experience. My friends, do you know what this is called? This is called Thomism uh, in, in, in theology and philosophy. It's called Thomism. It comes from Thomas. And so that's good. But that's sort of Renaissance thinking. That is the kind of thinking that Unitarians talk about. Those who deny the scriptures and deny the person of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit. That is tremendous idea. And Christians follow after that. Some of, I said, half-paid Christians, they follow after this kind of a thinking and they apply and say, well, God only reveals to us the gospel and heaven and the way to know Christ. But they don't say, God actually reveals everything to us. If you are to know anything, it has to come from the Lord. But you know, that is actually humanist thinking. It's not Christian thinking. The scripture says this in John chapter 1 and verse 9. He says, that was the true light which lighteneth every man that cometh into the world. He says, this light of Jesus Christ is the thing that helps you to understand even the basic things that one plus one equals two. Why is it that some people cannot compute? Why is it that some people are in a vegetative state? They have all the things. They have all the, the brain and the cells. But something. And the scientists don't know. Well, why is it that this person is not thinking? You're showing them all of these things. But they seem to not to get it. It's because they think in a humanistic fashion. There's only one way of knowing anything. And that's what this menorah, this candlestick is showing. There's only, we need the light. Light of God. That's what we need. And that's why it, is, it makes it very radical. And even Christians don't think like this. But we ought to think like this. The only way to know anything is to think God's thoughts after him. If you don't think God's thoughts after him, you can't know anything unless God reveals to you. And that's why we have the lamp here. Well, let me just give you an example of why you can't trust things. You can't trust reason. You can't trust human philosophy. And there are people who go after these things. Human philosophy. You got your reason? It counts for something. People say, well, they say, well, sure, it counts for some, something, Christians. The only people in the world, dear friends, that can use their reason properly are, are actually Christians. We can use our reasons without any of the restrictions and limitations of humanism. We can use our reason, we can use our rationality to greater extent than any humanist ever thought of doing because it's been set free by the word of God. We are now being guided and governed by the word of God that has been revealed to us. Now we think God's thoughts after him. But you can't still trust your reason as a source of truth, dear friends. You can't trust your reason. If so, you know what 
what history, history of philosophy is. You know, there are people who go and do a whole four-year degree of history of philosophy. Let me just um, help you with that and give you in two minutes history of philosophy. You don't have to pay all your fees and uh, spend four years doing history of philosophy. Let me tell you what history of philosophy is. This is, this is um, the, the stupidity of it. Um, so history of philosophy is John Socrates, put the name John to it, he writes a book. He, he gives his ideas about the meaning of life. Now, 50 years later, Sam Plato, he comes along and he writes a book showing that John Plato was not all right after all. There were some things in his, in his writings, in his thinking, that was wrong about the meaning of life. Then 50 years later, Susan Hippocrates, she comes along and she writes a book about why Sam Plato was wrong about his interpretation. And all of them claim to be basing their whole philosophies on reason. And that's the whole history of philosophy summed up. The ancient Greeks to the modern world is one philosophers refuting the other ones on the basis of human reason. That's what it is. You can't trust that, dear friends. You can't trust such a thing. We have the light. We have the candlestick. But the second thing that people think about is experience. You can't trust your experience. You can't trust your reason, your logic. You can't trust your experience as a tr source of truth. Let me give you an example. And this is the thing. People say, well, I felt this. I've experienced this. You can't trust it. The apostle Peter himself said he had the experience on the holy mount. But I said, but we have a more sure word of prophecy. But let me give you an example. I, I read about this about in the Vietnam War. There was a man who, who went into the fight and, uh, and the, he was hit by the shrapnel. And he was cut down from the knees. He fell down from the knees. He, uh, it was a horrible thing. It blew off his legs, both of them. And he didn't know it. He didn't know. He, he just blanked out or blacked out. Three, four days later in hospital, she, he wakes up. The nurse comes and says, oh, you're awake. And he says, yeah, I've just come round. What happened? Uh, and, and she asked him, well, how do you feel? How do you feel this morning? I feel fine, but my toes are really hurting. And uh, that was his experience, you see. His toes were hurting. He says, it's killing me. Experience, dear friends. Experience. You cannot trust experience. That's why we concentrate. We keep saying we need to be the people of the book. We are the people of revelation, as in God has revealed himself. This is the thing. The Lord wanted Israel to know, I am the light that you need. I am the source of light and knowledge that you need. So the only reliable source of truth and knowledge is this revelation. You can't trust your mind as a source of knowledge. You can't trust your experience, but you can trust Jesus Christ and his word that has been inspired of the Holy Spirit, in whom is gathered up all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, the scripture says. Do we actually believe that? It's not just, just talking about spiritual things, but all wisdom and knowledge. And you and I are the 
Only people in this world, dear friends, have, have been so privileged as Christians to really be able to tap into that knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because if God has saved us by His grace and brought us to know Jesus Christ, He is our wisdom. Dear friends, you're privileged. So He should be your knowledge. He should be your reason. And something else. The way that God intended for us to use our reason. Let me tell you how we are to do that. Let me give you another, another lesson here about the difference between Christianity and time is gone. Uh, <clears throat> difference between Christianity and humanism in all these things that I've just mentioned. The, the purpose of your mind, according to Christianity, the purpose that God has given you in mind, thinking, is to receive the truth from God and you live your life in terms of that. In response to that, knowing the Lord, that's the purpose of your mind, your thoughts. Don't waste your mind. Don't waste your thinking. Everything that the Lord shows to you, any knowledge that you have, one plus one equals two. That's wonderful. Praise God for it. I said, Lord, it is thee who has shown me these things. To, to understand these things, to have the capability of understanding these things. When you look under the microscope something and you, you have seen something you've never seen before, or you read in a book and you find out something about, about the world that exists, or whatever it is, you give glory to God. Your mind was made so that you receive the truth and give glory to God and then live your life unto the Lord. So, that's the difference between humanism and Christianity. So the lamp there in the tabernacle was the basis of Christian doctrine of revelation and living our life according to that light. Look at some of the things that the Bible um, it, it shows us of the image of this lamp to show that the only way to know things is God's revelation, illumination and enlightenment. If you were to turn to uh, Psalms 27, and I, I appreciate the fact that our time is gone, but I, I don't want to leave it halfway as I usually do. But um, Psalm 27, and verse 1, it says, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Do you see? The Lord is my light. The Lord is my salvation. Or in Psalm 36, verse 9, it says, For with thee is the fountain of life. With you, Lord, is the fountain of life, source of life. What life is about. In thy light shall we see light, it says. In thy light shall we see light. That, that in itself is, is such a vast subject that the Lord is revealing there. It's only in the light that God casts that we can see anything else clearly. So what should scientists of this world do? As, as they understand things, they should give glory to God and say, Lord, you've shown me these things. It wasn't because of my knowledge and understanding of things, but you have revealed these things to us. And then if you were to think about that text that I mentioned earlier on in Psalm 119, verse 105, thy lamp is a lamp, uh, thy word is a lamp unto my feet 
and a light unto my path. If I try to understand life in, in, in any other light, so to speak, that, uh, than that lamp, that light of, that one lamp of, uh, I, I am going to be walking in darkness. That's what it's saying. If I try to understand life in the light of any other lamp than the lamp of Jehovah, I am walking in darkness. I think I'm clever. I think I know things, but I'm actually in darkness. That's the message of the lampstand. That's the message of the candlestick. Because you need the light of the Lord. You need the light of the Lord. And it's fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ again. Obviously it is. In John chapter 8 and verse 12, we read, Then Jesus spake Jesus again unto them, saying, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. This is just as radical, dear friends, as the, uh, as the first thing. When the Lord Jesus Christ called himself the bread of life, he was saying that with that, th this is what God means of sustaining human existence. Without Jesus Christ, human existence will not be explained. You can't explain the existence of people without knowing and, and without Christ. And you cannot continue in any, any true meaning of, of, the, of the word. Now he's saying, I am the light of the world. He's saying that you cannot know anything about anything without me, says Jesus. You're going to be walking in darkness until you're a Christian. No matter how many PhDs you may want to have after your name, you're still in the darkness. He says, I am the light of the world. And you are going to walk in darkness unless... I have lit up your light, your life. But it's not just Jesus Christ. This is another picture as well of, of something else that the Lord Jesus says. This, the, the, the lampstand is a picture of Christ, but another person as well. The Lord Jesus Christ said in Matthew 5 and verses 14 and to 16, he says, he addresses Christians. He says, ye are the light of the world. A city that is set on an hill cannot be hid. Neither do men light a candle and put it on the bushel, but on a candlestick, and it giveth light unto all that are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. You only manifest God's revealed character in your life as you live by the revelation of God in your life. As you live by the word of God, you live by the word of Christ, then you become the light of the world. And when people imitate you and follow you and believe you as you lead them to the Lord Jesus Christ, they got out of darkness then. That's why we need to keep pointing people to the Lord Jesus Christ because they need to get out of their darkness. They need to come into the light of Christ. So the only people in the world who are walking in the light is Christ, who is the light of the world, and Christians who are to be the light of the world. Everybody else in the world is in darkness. And that's the great implication of this candlestick. There are so many little details, dear friends, that we have left off. But this is something that you, you can think of. Why is it that the world the way it is? Why is it we have had, till recent times, I should say, a, a, a world in the West 
that has lived differently to the rest of the world. Think about this. There's some certain details that you ought to think about. And of course, we, we, I said to you earlier on about the, uh, the, the oil, the olive oil is a picture of the Holy Spirit that gives the energy and the resources for the light to operate. But you think about the, the nations of this world. Why is it that some nations are productive, other nations not productive? Why is it that some nations are sitting on a lot of material that could be used for the benefit of the nation, but they don't? They've got everything, but they don't know how to use it. And then there are certain nations that didn't really have very much, but somehow they were more productive. It is because of the influence of the Bible, influence of the Bible, this light of the truth that is in Jesus Christ. The only ones who are to be most productive are people who have, who have taken and embraced Jesus Christ and he has dominated their lives by the word of God. It is very interesting. You look at the history of the Protestant West, the British Isles, North America, Germany, Switzerland, and so on. There are all kinds of people who came into these lands, you know, the Celts, the Picts, the um, Vikings, the Romans, where are they now? What happened to them? What was their influences? You know, there are people who, who do all these documentaries, the history documentaries, and say, oh, they were such a great, great people, and blah, 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 that they say. But where are they? What happened to these people who, um, who came, dominated for a while, and then they vanished away? What happened to them? What was the thing that they produced? The only culture, the only people, or the only idea, that dominated and took uh, and produced what we have, uh, uh, the greatest Western cultures in the history of mankind, is the Protestant Reformation culture, which was guided by the word of God and the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. They brought Christianity. It was the Christian culture that took root here. None of these others had, had a Christian culture. They didn't have the word of God. It was the teaching of the Bible, Reformation doctrines, that made the Protestant West the greatest and most powerful, most prosperous culture in the history of the world. Now you, now you compare that. British Isles, which was once, uh, and North America with South America. South America has all kinds of resources. You talk about resources, they have everything. But why have they not been as prosperous? Why has it been that they have been dominated by Roman Catholicism and all kinds of heathenism that is there? But in terms of productivity, and you, you, you then look at the rest of the world. You see, there is a difference. It is not white supremacy. It is not because they, they dominated and enslaved other people. No, no, it's none of these things. That's what nonsense that is taught to to children at school when they are taught history, dear friends. It's none of those things. What has made these nations in the West, Protestant nations in the West, has been the Bible, the Word of God. This has been the light. This has been the lampstand. That, and, and so when we get rid of it, why is the nation is, 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 is a mess right now? Why all these places that were so blessed have rejected the Word of God? And so what falls upon us are the judgments from this book. 
of a nation that has that apostatizes and then people who reject this so so they will vanish these empires will fall dear friends but amongst all of these there is always going to be a remnant the scripture says according to the election of grace there are always going to be a people who continue to shine in the darkness they shine they carry on not with a candlestick in their hand no but they have the word of god they have jesus christ with them so be encouraged dear friends be encouraged you're, you're, you feel yourself being not productive what do you need jesus christ and his word that's what you need your life to be set for him and for his glory your business is not doing well focus on jesus christ and his word do everything for his glory seek to do your best for the glory of god depending on his grace don't cut corners don't do things half-heartedly don't do things without truth and faithfulness these are the things this the revelation of god that is being pictured in the lampstand well time is gone i've said it a few times but we we there is a reason what i am saying here there is a reason why we have all these differences why the history of the world the way it's turned out don't look at things in a humanistic with humanistic eyes don't look at the history of the world detaching god from it detaching the bible from it and so dear friends we have such a wonderful book and uh, it is worthy of our study and our prayerful attention well may the lord jesus christ receive glory then let us all pray oh our god and our father we thank thee for thy word and we pray that thou will bless it to us and as we commune with one another we pray uh, for thy uh, thy blessing upon the refreshments and our time of fellowship but oh lord we pray that thy word would abide with us that it would uh, be as that light uh, upon uh, us every day that we might go to it and be refreshed by it and set our heart and lives upon it for the glory of our savior the lord jesus christ may this oil of the holy spirit work in us the one who has inspired the scriptures work in us to understand it and to live accordingly in our lives so lord bless each one here and we ask these things in christ's name amen